Let me give you a previously on. So the last 10 weeks or so, we've been journeying as a church through the Ten Commandments, Ten Words of Life. Over the last really six months in general, we've been journeying through the book of Deuteronomy. And we're continuing through the book of Deuteronomy as we lead up to and through Easter. So today, I'm going to continue our teaching series, and really a new teaching series, not just we're in Deuteronomy as a whole, but just repackaged a little bit. So it's like some of those TV shows where it's like you get a season eight, part one, and then like a season eight, part two, and it's like, isn't it two separate seasons? I don't know. But anyways, we're going to look at the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six, the next six Weeks And so what I would like to do this morning is before we get into the actual teaching part is I just want to read the first few verses of Deuteronomy chapter six and per each week prior as we have read these verses, uh, they'll, they'll be on the screen behind me. But I also just want you to listen and hear the word of the Lord, because Moses said this aloud to a group of people, so they would have heard this as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances, the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life, by keeping his statutes and commands I am giving you your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gate. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now needing a word from you, needing you. As we sing songs, as we contemplate our life, as we respond to who you are and what you have done, give us the capacity to hear you. Open our hearts to know you truly. As I speak and as I share May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Thank you for your love and your grace and your patience with us, even when we don't understand, even when we're hard-hearted. Thank you for that promise of your grace and your mercy, and above all, your love for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So for those of you who might not know me, my name is Kyle Davies. I am the lead pastor of Generations Church. And one of the things that we always like to encourage is swapping and sharing 
of stories. So we've taken kind of a strategic break from our family story, but for the most part, we like focusing on the collective of what God is doing in the midst of our community. So one of our values is story over sin, and we hope to continue to build enough trust with you so that you can share your story with others on your lifelong journey of following Jesus. And maybe you're someone who has some trepidation or some fear or some uncertainty. That's okay. We hope that you find people here who have had some of that at one point and maybe even still have some of that, but because of Jesus and the work that he is doing amidst our community, that you get to a place where you can be honest with that, that you can share that, and you can find help along the way. And the reason we, we talk about stories and being able to share your story is because we have a dominant voice in our life. Let me, let me just ask you, as you think maybe back on your life, and maybe even think about moving forward, who is the primary voice in your life? Is it a parent who you just flash back and it's like you, you get hurt and you say rub some dirt on it, and so that, that's a voice that, that you hear? Um, or maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a boss or a coworker who was like, hey, work smarter, not harder. And the first time you heard that, you were like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. And, and so you, you've taken that and you've even passed that on. Maybe, maybe it's a, a little more nuanced. Maybe it's the coach in the locker room when you're up 28 to 3 and you're blowing the other team out. And he's got all these, you miss the block, you miss the tackle, you miss the, and it's like, man, I, I, we're winning. Like, is things not good enough? And, and you just have that voice of like, oh, maybe, maybe stuff isn't that good. Or maybe it's something on social media where it's like, man, you just see all these positivity. And, it, it, and it's like, you're like, okay, just got to be more positive, be more positive. And it's like, man, why am I so negative? And it's, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe it's a, a TV show that you watch or, or a news channel. And it's like you can picture that person and they've got this common refrain. And that just seeps into your life. It seeps into your demeanor. And even when things get tough or things get challenging or even when things are going well, you can kind of hear that person, their refrain, their thought, their, their mentality in your background. And, and when it rubs up against something that's a little uncomfortable or, or it's a little like not sure, you're like not quite sure what to, to, to do with that. Because when we feel pain, should I just rub some dirt on it? When life's going well, well, is there something I could be better at? Did I miss a block or a tackle? When we're talking with others and, you know, life's going well for them, are you like, well, you're forgetting this area over here because that coach's voice has seeped into your mindset. And so while things can be going well, eh, you can always offer some room for improvement or some healthy encouragement to that other person. And that may be just one example. But chances are, you've got some voice, some person, that has a common refrain for how to view life, how to engage difficult circumstances. And even when things are going well, when's the other shoe going to drop? And maybe it's another person. Or as even Charles said a moment ago, sometimes it's ourselves. 
It's the inner voice that we have created for ourselves to keep ourselves going. Maybe to keep from being triggered or deal with trauma. Maybe it's just because of the life that you're living now is you've created a narrative or a story to just keep moving forward or to convince yourself that going back or moving forward or, or that this whatever circumstance or situation, maybe it's not that bad or maybe it's the opposite of maybe it's really, really bad. And without the presence of God, we all face a deficit of someone trying to speak into our life to fill us up. We crave voices, we crave thinking, we, we should try to navigate the world we live in. We offer, we operate at deficit. And the only voice, the only perspective that can truly fill us up and help us navigate decisions, the difficulty, and even when things are going well, is the voice of God. Some of you still don't believe me. That's okay. This is a place where you don't have to take everything that I say as 100% truth, but I hope that as we journey together and as we swap stories and as we engage with God's word, that we can be open to having an honest dialogue about what God is doing in our lives. One of the speakers who are, is out on the circuit, his, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. And in a recent conference, uh, he talked, and really this illustration on the influence of increasing information related to decision-making. And essentially, it's this idea, and the, this question, that says, when you give a leader perfect information about their situation, and they are in perfect command of the problem that they are faced with, what happens? How does it affect the decisions of the leader? And he goes on and talks about this study done about 50 years or so ago by Stuart Oskamp. And he explored this question. When you give a leader perfect information about their situation, and they are in perfect command of the problem that they are faced with, what happens? Oskamp was a psychiatrist, and he had a patient named James Kidd, who he had been seeing for many, many years. Kidd was 29 years old, ex-military, college graduate, had a lot of psychological problems, had a lot of family trauma, and so Oskamp was seeing Kidd. And what he decided to do is he, he took all of his notes from seeing Kid, from years and years and years of working with him, and he summarized them into a couple of paragraphs. And as he did this, he also brought together all kinds of other psychiatrists and therapists, serious people, chairs of, uh, at, at universities and schools and, and, and top professionals about 50 years ago, and he brings them all together, and what he tells this group of experts, this panel, is he says, hey, I've summarized my notes into a few paragraphs. Here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to read it, take my notes, and then I'm going to give you a 25-question questionnaire about what's wrong with kid. And I want to see how many of you get the answers right. 
So experts, they know what they're doing, they take the notes, they read through it, and they take the questionnaires. Oskim says, okay, here, here's what we're going to do next. I'm going to give you now not just a couple paragraphs, I'm going to give you three pages worth of notes. And you're going to do the questionnaire again. So they did the exercise. Next, he says, okay, I'm not just going to give you three pages of notes. I'm going to give you 10 pages of notes. And you're going to take the questionnaire, and we're, we're going to see how you did. And he does it one final time, but he doesn't stop at 10 pages of notes. He gives them the whole file. And he gives it to them and has them take the questionnaire. And what Oskamp wants to know is what is the effect of giving a decision maker, an S expert, more information on the problem. What is their diagnosis? As they get more information, can they figure out what's wrong? And the answer seems obvious. If you give a decision maker more information about a case, they're going to do a better job at deciding on how to make sense of that case. We operate on that assumption all the time. The more information we have, the better decision we will be able to make. More information is better than less information. So what does Stuart Oskamp find? That it's not true. When he gives them a summary, they get about 26% of the answers right. A few more pages... They got one more question right. Gave them the whole file. They got two more questions right. More information resulted in a pretty mediocre performance in making sense of the patient. And research over the years have spent time trying to understand why we overestimate the value of more information. We think if I gather more information on a problem, I will necessarily be a better decision maker. But what's interesting is Oskamp asks a second question, not just gathering the results of that questionnaire. Every time he gives his panel of experts more new information about kids, he asks them a question. What percentage of questions do you think you're going to get right? As they receive more information, their confidence about how they would do on the test increased. Summary, I'm going to get about 25% right. 10 pages, 75%. Heck, I got the whole file. I'm going to get every question right. But in this case, giving an expert extra information did not improve the accuracy of their decisions but it improves the confidence they have in their decision to such an extent that it makes them overconfident. A panel of experts were no better with more information than they had been at the beginning. They were in dangerous delusion about the extent of their own abilities. They were in dangerous delusion about the extent of their own abilities. We function as personal decision makers in our 
life. We are the personal experts in our own lives. We think that if we have more information, if we have more time, if we have more context, then we will be able to make the right decision in every given moment. At every level, we operate with that same assumption. That if we had more information, our lives would simply be better. When things don't go well, well, I just didn't have all the information. Someone was withholding from me. God was withholding from me. I wish I would have known. And what happens is we start to seek out voices to confirm or cajole us into better lives. Like I said, it starts to seep into our view of God. In our interactions with him, we start to treat him like a vending machine where we can punch in the right code and out pops a treat. Where if we can, if we can have more information, I'll know that D4 gets me a bigger house. If, if, if G7 gets me a better relationship with my kid. And we start to interact with God in such a way that we think if we can just get the right code, then the result will be better lives and blessing. And so we try to get the right combo because we think that more information, better decisions will always result in better lives. Now, I'm not saying don't express some level of critical thinking or don't seek out truth. I'm saying, in fact, you should do both of those. But the direction, the voice that you seek matters. Moses, on the precipice of the promised land, gives a series of speeches to the Israelite people. And what he wants them to know is that they are about to enter a land where there's all kinds of competing voices for how to live life, how to manipulate the gods, how to be successful. And what happens is they need to have clarity on what voice should be the most dominant voice, what story should be the most dominant story in their life, which is why for the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses recounts their history and their rescue from slavery in Egypt and their failure to recognize God in the, the last time they were on the promised land and how they trusted their own voice and their own perspective and then they got exiled to the wilderness for 40 years and now this new generation faces that choice once again. And so Moses gives them the guardrails through the Ten Commandments, words of life that is actually unpacked through the rest of Deuteronomy and what happens is in this chapter 6 as Moses is almost explaining or extrapolating those first two commands and how to have clarity on that of how to have no other gods before the one true and living God. And he's saying that actually it's not more information that will grant you a better life in the promised land. It's not, you, he says you have the information available. It's in the story. It's the God of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when you cried out to him when you were in slavery, entered into Egypt, bested all the other gods, and rescued you. And that same God has been faithful time and time 
again. And so Moses recounts how receiving the Ten Commandments doesn't necessarily like, cause them to respond with joy. But what he's trying to help them understand is that what God is doing is moving towards them. Because God loves them. And God wants them to know his best and his way so that they can flourish. And that they should not be filled with fear, but instead should rejoice because God has moved towards them. And what's amazing is, I know I started in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you read back right before that, at the end of chapter 5, they're like, Moses, you go up to the mountain, you hear from God because we are afraid of God. We see his greatness and his goodness. We see his provision. We understand who he is and what he is like and who has lived that has heard and seen the voice of God. And they are so afraid because what it might mean is that they actually have to have a relationship with this God and get to know this God for themselves and not simply allow Moses to mediate that relationship. But God in his gracious nature and mercy allows Moses to be a mediator for a time so that they hear and see and know the will of the Lord through Moses, which is why he's giving them this series of speeches. And so Israel was fearful of God, but they are not to be solely afraid of God in terms of run and hide and when's he going to get us because we're having too much fun or what's going to come out when we push the code into the vending machine is he going to give us a treat or is he going to give us something that tastes awful when we operate under these premises and what what is Israel's afraid of what God might do what Moses is helping them understand is what you they actually need to do is repeat a refrain Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The Lord doesn't want to be feared. He understands that we are afraid because he's eternal and he is glorious and he is good, and they experience that in a very purposeful and powerful way. But it's not about fear, it's about love. And perfect love casts out fear. So the Shema, this verse was to be repeated morning and night so that the people of God could remember that as they went, as they lived their lives, morning, noon, and night, that the Lord was their God, that he is totally other. And they were to love him with their total being, with all that they were. And so we have to begin to ask ourselves, who is this God? And what has he done? And if we start to grasp this, we start to gravitate this, as that starts to be the sun in our universe that we orbit around, we will begin to respond in such a way that other people see the glory and the goodness of the Lord. See, that first phrase in the Shema is the Lord our God. Who is this God? 
And how does he become ours? The Lord, if, you, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see that the Lord has like, there's four capital letters, L-O-R-D. And if you read a little bit later, you're like, oh, there's Lord, which is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And you might wonder like, well, what's the difference? Are they the same word, the same name? What, what actually through Bible translation has happened is essentially people were afraid to use the personal name of God. So they transliterate it a bunch of times. They layer it on top of each other. They combine Yahweh with Adonai and essentially abbreviated it. So I share all that to say that Lord and capitalize, who is this? That's that personal name of God, Yahweh. The God that when he gives it to Moses at the burning bush, who, sh- who am I to say that has sent me to these gods of Egypt. God says, I am. I will be. So God, Yahweh, the Lord, is the God that will be. The God that is. Who was, and is, and is to come. It's constant, continuous, never changing. Always faithful and constant while other things come and go. See, it's the I will be, the God who is, who rescues this nation out of slavery for the nations. See, this nation, this people, when they heard this phrase, they were to internalize that they are to be with God for others. With God for others. And that can be a common refrain, honestly, for our lives. What, how are we to exist with God for others? When you start to think about why you go to work, when you interact with your family, the, the, the place in which you dwell, your total of who you are with God in that moment for others. The orbit of your life with God for others. See, God didn't create the world because he needed or wanted love. He didn't want or need cheering up, so he thought he'd create some playthings to interact with life. He lives and exists eternally, in community, perfectly happy, full of delight, goodness, and glory. And what he decided is in this love, out of this mutual delight, that it was worth sharing with something that can then receive it and express that and share that as well. So why did God create the world when he didn't have to? The answer is grace. It was out of his abundance that he gives the essence of who he is to people so that they may receive it and share it. The God who is, will always always has been and always will be is a gracious and sharing God, sharing his essence so that wherever we may find ourselves, we can be in the midst of that glory and this goodness. See, it's out of this grace he creates us not to get joy, but to give it. It's an interesting concept in our culture that measures everything in terms of wins and losses. Heck, even in the West, in the United States, we're still having a tough time with soccer because of ties. <laughs> we like to win. We want to know who's ahead, how they're ahead. We, we even got all stats, like uh, they're talking in the NBA, 
NBA right now about the MVP race and what all they're doing is the second gen stats, these second tiers, because the original stats weren't good enough. We have to figure out a different way to nuance and measure and compete and compare with others. And sometimes this seeps, yeah, and sometimes this seeps into our view of God, doesn't it? We think God's limited. He only has so many goodies to go around. He's limited in his grace and mercy. So we try to get there first. We try to do the best thing. We try to outgive someone else. We try to outpraise someone else. We try to show up more than the other person. We try to say enough right things. And we start to compare and compete with others because we believe the Lord is limited. But the God who was and is and is to come has no limits, has no limitations. So are you living your life in such a way where you actually believe in order for you to win that everyone else has to lose? When you pray, do you only want God to be on your side? We can joke about sports and and, and funny things like that, but I mean, it, it's kind of the most evident, right? We can joke and say, oh, you know, Super Bowl was just, I wanted the, the Eagles to win, or I want to pray for the, for the Chiefs to win, or, or maybe it's, it's even other things, but what we don't consider is that for us to win and for those prayers to be answered, maybe someone else is praying those same prayers, just the opposite. Or in order for our prayer to be achieved, someone else has to lose. And what happens is as we consider our life, as we consider our choices, and as we consider life with God for others, the direction of our prayer, the direction of our life is steeped in comparison and competition. The only way for me to win and get blessing is for someone else to lose. So let me just ask, how much do you need to win? Are you willing to let someone else win? Some of us believe that we're actually willing to let others win. We tell ourselves, of course I'm willing to take a loss which may mean you hold your tongue when you want to speak. But in reality, we make statements or vent to friends because we desperately want to win. We got to make sure our point is out there. We got to make sure we're in the right. We've got to make sure we've told the correct story so just in case something else happens, we still look good and we still win, or we maintain control, or we maintain the power of the situation. And actually the answer to the question, how does God become ours, helps us deal with some of that hard reality. See, the Shema was a shared creed. It was communal. So we may talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. We don't mean private relationship with Jesus. But the Shema above all was communal. Together, 
the Israelite people were to say, this is our God who was and is and is to come. Life with God for others. Together, our God, we will orbit our life around that reality. Not just simply my life. And we think God is so much time just oriented around us as if the solar system operates in reverse. And he's only limited and has so much to go around. It's also why we have a hard time with God because we realize he cannot be manipulated. We can't always push the right buttons. He's not the genie coming out of the magic lamp. He's not just the He's not a big bully in the sky. He's not that vending machine. He's not even a disapproving parent or a get out of jail free card. The God of the universe freely gives of himself, reveals himself to people. And he did that for you and Jesus. I fully realize that as I say some of that, some of you are like, when do I catch my break? I hear the stories of the Bible and how God rescued these Israelites out of slavery. I need free. Can I have a turn, please? Can I get some of that? And the honest answer is that he has moved towards you in the person of Jesus. That was his initiation. And he hopes that as you respond to that truth, you will open your eyes and your hearts to the other areas that he's already at work. Because God is at work. But because we think it's about our life and our prayer and our direction and our choices and our decisions, we actually miss the presence of God within our lives. And we listen to the other voices in our world. And in all these cases, it tends to be more transactional than relational. See, just because you get more information about God to bring about change, because you'll become more confident, because maybe you know more about the Bible, but you may not be right. And what I would encourage you is do the simple things well. Take what you know. You may not know the whole Bible. You may not feel like you can just quote verses on Rome. But what you do know where God has revealed himself to you, that's the starting place. That is the step to take. And so hear that God has moved towards you in Jesus. And this creed, this refrain, led the Israelites to begin to say, there are no other gods like our God. Who is like you, O Lord, amongst all the gods? The Egyptian gods couldn't do nothing to stop the Lord's people leaving Egypt. And it was because they had experienced the living presence of their God in history that the Israelites could call on the could call the Lord their God. They put to practice what they knew. They hadn't even received the Ten Commandments yet. They didn't have all of Moses' speeches yet. They simply responded to the information about God and how he had revealed himself. So some of you have stories where you can point back to where you see God, have heard God, cling to those stories, tell 
those stories to the people in your life, to your children, to your coworkers. Become more versed. Become more confident. And for those of you who, again, may be wondering, well, I'm not sure I've had that moment. Just as God sent Moses as a deliverer on behalf of Israel, that no other gods could stand, God sends himself incarnate in Jesus. Today is typically called Palm Sunday, where Jesus, the story goes, rides in on a donkey, and people shout, Hosanna in the highest. This is the Lord. This is God. And it's those same people that a few days later will cry out, crucify him. For we are fickle. We want a God. We want a Lord. And so what God, a Lord, will you trust? There is only one God who has power. There is only one God unlike any other God. It's the God who freely gives of himself, who loses so that you might win. And so we may, may we be people who respond to that reality, who are willing to take losses at times or what feel like losses so that the character of God actually shines in us, shines out of our weakness so that we get our courage and confidence not on what we control, making the right decision, but on allowing God to be with God for others in those moments. See, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was God choosing humanity once again. See, Jesus came because it's personal for God. You're personal for God. He loves you. So he didn't stay at a distance. He moves towards you. He moved towards his people and he moves towards you and Jesus. And I believe he has empowered his church to move, move towards people again and again with the character and the power of God so that they know that they are loved and seen by a great, big, and glorious God. Let's pray. God, you are good. You have moved towards us. May we simply be people this week who choose you, who respond to that reality, know that your life, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is personal, that you want to be our God. May we faithfully respond and be your people. Thank you for your love and for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.